Good morning, Orangewood. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles? We're going to continue this uh, amazing study of God's Word because His Word's amazing and our God is amazing that He can touch our lives and make everything glorious. Uh, some of you may come here right now and feel like, <laughs> I feel like anything but glorious. But in Christ Jesus, there's such amazing good news that, that God has loved us and reconciled us. And, and not only does God make us glorious in his image. You ready for this? He wants us to go and, and to make the world glorious for him. So we need to, to get into God's word and say, what does this mean for us? And, and speak to us today, Lord Jesus, because we're here for you. Um, and we want to feel and experience and remember uh, that we are glorious in Christ Jesus and bring that to the world. So as we begin, let's join our hearts in prayer and pray together. Father God, it is true because you are an infinitely glorious being, eternal, majestic, powerful, that everything you touch and everything you do is glorious. And it's amazing to remember that before time began, you set a glorious love on your people. A love that would be so glorious that your son Jesus would come and become one of us to rescue us and, and to take the filth of our lives and the sin and the pollution and the brokenness and, and through his life, death and resurrection that we now can be yours. And if you make everything glorious and we are yours, what does that make us? It means that our circumstances won't define us. It means that the brokenness won't define us. It means that our sinfulness won't define us. It means that you will define us as you call us to yourself and wash us and robe us and make us glorious. Father, not only have you just made us glorious to set us on a shelf so you can look at us and say, wow, that's cool. But you've made us glorious so that we can, in you, empowered by your spirit and the gospel, go into a world and touch for you to make glorious as well. Wow. So God, would you come with power and remind us of that? Set our eyes way off of ourselves and onto you. Come and feed us and be with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. How many of y'all can relate to the protagonist of Charles uh, Schultz's comic strip, Charlie Brown? I mean, how many can relate to Charlie Brown here? Anybody? I, I sure can. Uh, again, maybe for some of you who don't know Charlie Brown because you're too young, you're making us sick. But, you know, we know Charlie Brown. Um, Charlie Brown had a life that continually just kind of found itself a little bit into trouble, mischief, usually just stumbled and bumbled along life and, and just bad stuff. I mean, Charlie had some like cloud following the dude, you know? I mean, he just had stuff that continually came into his life uh, that kind of defined who he was. I relate to Charlie Brown. I think there's some things that happened to me. Just, man, I feel like Charlie. Maybe it's the size of our heads. He had a huge noggin, you know? I had a huge noggin. But, but Charlie had a way to describe life that was very interesting. I mean, Charlie used two words, two, uh, a two-word phrase to kind of describe everything uh, that was heading. As a matter of fact, not only did he use these two words, uh, matter of fact, it was often used for him. It was told to him. And the two words that Charlie Brown is famous for are good grief. Good grief. 
mean, good grief, Charlie Brown. Good grief. How, how'd you get yourself here? Or, or has he stumbled on a bad situation? Good grief. Think about that. Good grief. Good grief. I mean, talk about a paradox. I mean, is there really such thing as good grief? And it seems to be uh, uh, opposites, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, grief doesn't seem to be anything good. So what in the world is Charlie Brown thinking about when he's talking about good grief? You know, interestingly, as we get into God's word today, uh, we are going to see that God's word tells us not necessarily about good grief. It tells us about two different types of grief. It tells us about a godly grief and a worldly grief. I hope all of us are saying, what in the world can a godly grief be? What can a godly grief be and what, what can a worldly grief be? You see, it's very imperative that we know this. And I'll tell you why. Because according to God's word, a godly grief will lead us to salvation in life. But a worldly grief, a worldly grief will lead us to death and, and despair. So we really got to wrestle with the fact, what does it mean more than a Charlie Brown good grief? What is God telling us of a godly grief? Do we have it? What is a, a worldly grief? How, how do we avoid it? It's interesting because this grief that God is talking about with a godly grief or a worldly grief is really kind of a grief over our brokenness, a grief over our sinfulness, a grief over the fact that, that there's a, just a, a lack of perf, uh, perfection in us. I sure hope you know that. What do we do with that grief that's produced, either godly or, or, or worldly? Because one leads to salvation and one leads to death. But to understand a godly grief, we must first have these couple of things. So if you have your bulletins, you may want to turn to the outline and give the answers right now. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at a godly heart that overflows with joy. That no matter, listen, this is such great news. That no matter what your circumstances are right now, no matter where you are in the storyline, so to speak, no matter what is happening uh, in your little world right now, that Scripture tells us that we can have a godly heart now that overflows with joy, no matter what our circumstances. Man, I want to get that. Secondly, it talks about a godly comfort that heals our depression. A godly comfort that heals our depression. Wait a minute, you tell me that Christian people, people that are loved by God, uh, people that have been rescued by the Lamb, people who are filled with its Spirit, that we wrestle with depression? Darn tootin' we do. And uh, we'll find out what it means to have a godly comfort that heals our depression. And thirdly, a godly grief that leads to repentance in life. So let's turn in our Bibles. We've been uh, going through this amazing book of 2 Corinthians. We find ourselves today in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 2. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Now, I'm about ready to read it. And I guarantee you, I know what's going to happen. You're going to say, man, what in the world's going on? I mean, there's a story happening and there's a situation that's unfolding that you and I necessarily don't relate to. Because Paul was writing to a specific church at a specific time about a specific issue. But the amazing thing about the Bible is this, is that when Paul wrote with all of his gifts and abilities and his style, the Holy Spirit of God breathed upon him in such a way that he, he actually was writing God's word. 
And so, although we'll read a story and hear a part of uh, another a story about a time long ago, we know that this word is living and active, and this, this word is for you and for me. So, whoever you are and wherever you are in your journey, I mean, maybe you don't know this God yet. Let me tell you that we believe that God's word is, is trustworthy. He'll never lead us astray. And this story is for you and for me. All right, let's read it together. I'll read it aloud. You read it silently. Again, I'm back in the ESV today. It just is a little bit clearer to what the text is really saying in the ancient. Make room in your hearts for us, Paul exhorts the church. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Isn't it great to have a pastor be able to say that? I don't say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to live together and to to die together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Some of you here might be feeling like, I'm afflicted every turn I go right now. But God, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by uh, the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. And he sent him a letter saying, snap out of it, you're sinning. you got to change and repent. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not uh, because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. Look at that. So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, I was not, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that you in the sight of God, in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And beside our own comfort, we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction for you is, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Again, let us pray. Lord, there's some important things in what seems to be a pretty confusing part of the letter here. And God, again, I just feel like we're wading into a situation that feels a bit far away. 
But really it isn't. So Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see the truth of Jesus in this text. Give us ears to hear the message that you have for us. Give us hearts to embrace this. And Father, for your grace and for your glory, give us feet that walk in this truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing that Paul is telling us in verses 2 through 4 is that he's exhorting the church. He's begging the church. They see, they got a heart issue. They got a heart issue that, that their heart is too small to the gospel. The heart is too small to, to God's messenger, Paul, and to the community. And God is exhorting them. He says, you know, what we need to produce is, is a godly heart. A heart that beats for the gospel in Jesus Christ. A godly heart that will overflow with joy. Overflow with joy no matter what the circumstances is. I love the fact that that Paul is calling us to examine our hearts in the midst of his own afflictions. In the midst of his own hardships. In the midst of his own calamities. So we begin to realize again what the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to do to our hearts. It has the ability to give us joy despite despair. Joy in the midst of a world that seems to be crumbling around us. Joy that only comes through Jesus. The only way that he or that you and I could have a heart that is overflowing with joy is if we have these things. A heart that is opened up by the gospel. A heart that's like, it's like, like uh, heart surgery that replaces a heart of stone that doesn't believe and by God's grace gives us a new heart. A heart that beats for God. A heart that has been alive and made new in Christ Jesus. A heart opened by the gospel. The only way we'll have joy is a heart that's open to God's messenger. Uh, the messenger that God has for you to, to bring God's word. And the only way our hearts will be truly opened up and overflowing with joy is if they're opened up to one another. That we're in community. That we know each other and love each other. And we'll see why here in just a minute. But the first one is this. A heart that is opened up to the gospel. I mean, that's Paul's message. I mean, Paul tells us a lot of things. But he's already told the church at Corinth, listen, I've decided to know nothing among you except for one thing. And that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. You see, it's that one thing that has given Paul and us life and life abundantly. We've looked at this marvelous chapter of 5 and 6 and we've, we've seen that, that it was in Christ Jesus that, that God was reconciling the world to himself. That, that God wasn't counting our sins against us, but instead he placed them all on Jesus. I mean, this good news of the gospel is this, is that sinners like us, the broken like us, we truly can be reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. We can be declared not guilty, although we're filled with sins because Christ became our sins. It's amazing. So we have this reconciliation with God in Christ Jesus, but there's more. We have this partnership with God through Jesus that he wants to to change the world through us. We now are his ambassadors. We now are the agents of reconciliation. But he's told us more. He says, not only are you reconciled to a holy God in Christ Jesus, not only are you made partners with God through Christ Jesus, 
We are the temple of the living God. We are the place where God meets with sinners. We are the place where God wants to tell His story. So Paul continues to remind us that our hearts need to be open to the good news of the gospel. It's not about religion. It's not about performance. It's not about work harder. It's about Jesus and all that He has done. So if you want a heart that overflows with joy, it's the reality of Him no matter where you find yourself. And the good news of Jesus Christ. But there's more than that. It's a heart that's opened up to God's messenger, Paul. Um, and your pastor. You know, he said to them, listen, I, I came and the only thing I wanted to do was tell you about Jesus. Only thing I wanted to do is just open up your heart to him. And open up your heart to me. You know, First uh, Thessalonians 2, verses 8. Paul says, I so loved you that I not only preached the gospel to you, but I shared my very life with you. You see, the model that we have in Paul to have a heart that overflows with joy is one that's first connected to Jesus, and then secondly, one that's connected to each other. I mean, connected to each other in community. Listen, God lives in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God has created us for community. Um, and created to be with one another. Is your heart open to the gospel? The only way you'll ever have it overflow with joy. Is your heart opened up to God's messenger, his word and, and the preacher? You come here and say, God, I know Jeff. I know he's a mess. He's Charlie Brown. But somehow you use Charlie Brown to speak. And somehow it's your word coming through. So open up my ears to hear. Help me understand. I got to tell you, when I opened the illustration for the early service, I said that Charlie Brown used two, two, uh, two four-letter words to describe his life, good grief. <laughs> After the service, someone put their arm around me and said, Jeff, spell grief. G-R-I-E-F. Count those up. Five. All right? Okay. So I had to make a little change on the fly because Charlie Brown here, you know, is, is a frail, uh, stumbling, sinful person. But God has called to feed the flock here. So when you come, you got to say, God, open my heart, my, open my ears to hear, not you, not Jeff, but you. Open my, my, my heart to receive, not, not what he says, but what you say. But also it's more than that. Open up your heart to one another. Paul calls us in community. The only way we're going to ever have a life that overflows with joy is if we share our trials together. We share our life together. We share reality together. We know each other. We love each other. We cry together. Uh, we rejoice together. Paul says this, he goes, listen, I speak the truth in love. Um, I'm not self-serving. What I want to do is just tell you that truth in love. Really, those first few verses that we've looked at is so much of a pastor's heart, and I so can relate to what Paul says. He's begging his congregation, have a godly heart that overflows with joy, even in the midst of affliction. My beloved Orangewood, I plead with you, have a godly heart that overflows with joy even in the midst of affliction. The only way, only way, is through the gospel. Open your heart up to Jesus, to community, and let his joy flow through you. But there's more than that. He says in verses 5 through 7, a godly comfort that heals our depression. A godly comfort that heals our depression. Now the word that I read in the ESV was um, our discouragement. Um, our, our, no, it was dis- what, was, what was the word in the ESV? Discouragement. It was more than discouragement. It was more than downcast. It was downcast. 
The Greek word there is more. It's basically depression. Wait a minute. Those set free by the blood of the Lamb, those loved with the eternal love of God in Christ Jesus, those who are His and He'll never let us go. I mean, we're going to be depressed. We're going to be downcast. Uh, yes, uh, there's times that that happens to the best of us. Why? You know what? We were made in God's image and we were made for paradise. We were made to know and love and walk with Him. And we're not there yet. We live our lives in the midst of an absolute war zone. I mean, we live our lives where, where members of our church's two-year-old children are battling with cancer. We live our lives where empty seats are next to some of you, the beloved ones that have lost a battle somehow. We live our lives with, with prodigal sons and daughters who can't come back. We live our lives with, with such difficulty all around us. It's everywhere. Paul says, everywhere I turn, there is hardship and difficulty. And it's very, very difficult and depressing. We're not home yet. I mean, Paul basically says that the God of all comforts comforts the depressed. Guess who he's talking about? Paul. (laughs) Love that about the Bible. I love that authenticity. I love our heroes can be honest. That Paul says, I was depressed. I was discouraged. I was downcast. If you know me, you know my favorite preacher is Charles Spurgeon. He lit up London long before the Olympics did And he lit up London not with a torch that man made. He lit up London with a torch of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And man, did he preach Jesus. I mean, he preached in such a way that they took his sermons and they printed them out in the newspaper the next day. And people were coming to Christ just reading them. I love one of my favorite stories is that someone sent something to a friend in Australia and wrapped it in newspaper to keep it safe. When they got the gift, they ignored the gift, they read the newspaper, and they came to Christ through one of Spurgeon's sermons. Because Spurgeon had this amazing love for Jesus. I mean, Spurgeon can find Jesus everywhere in the Bible because it's it's all about him. And he would preach him with such authority and beauty and such invitations that they would come by the thousands to hear this man preach. And one day he blew away his congregation. He said, I'm depressed. And they're like, no, 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 you're Charles Haddon Spurgeon, man. You rock the world. You fill this place up. You preach Christ, he's so near and dear to you, and he was and he is. And yet, the reality of the battle, Spurgeon battled his whole life. Luther, the founder of the Reformation. I mean, Luther, the one who taught us clearly that we're saved by grace through faith, who told us about this great power of God and the gospel, wrestled with depression. I get it. I fight the darkness too. really do. Paul said, listen, I have conflict. I'm conflicted in every direction. He says, I'm fighting without, which basically means this. Everywhere Paul went, he had to defend who Jesus was. And he had to defend it with his flesh. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was shipwrecked. I mean, everywhere he turned, he just got it for Jesus. But I love this about Jesus, by the way. He, he told them in the beginning. When he met him on a road to Damascus and and, and this Saul went from a persecutor of Jesus to a proclaimer of Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to send you as a light to the Gentiles. I want to tell you, you're going to be really afflicted for the name. You're going to suffer for the name, but it's going to be through your suffering, Paul, that the message of Jesus Christ is going to be so glorious and so beautiful and so absolutely powerful. Fear within he had as well. I mean, I love the fact that Paul, Paul had fear. 
I mean, you know how much fear is in a preacher every time they stand up? You know how much fear it is uh, in our lives? I mean, Paul had it too. But look at verse 6, because verse 6 is about some of the best news that we could ever hear. I mean, it's unbelievable. It says this, it's God who comforts the downcast. It's God who encourages the discouraged. It's God himself who comforts the depressed. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, we were just said that we are going to be in a fallen world depressed sometimes. And who's the one to come meet us and lift it out of us? It's God. What good news is that God in Christ comforts the depressed? I just love the fact he doesn't despise the depressed. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't like being around depressed people. They're depressing. I don't like being around yours. They're depressing. And I can see why God, who's almighty and powerful and holy and all that stuff, says, you know, the depressing people depress me. Stay away from me. But it's God himself. Listen, it's God himself. It's God himself who comforts the depressed. If you remember how we started this letter, 2 Corinthians 1, and you need to go back and circle this. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7, remind us that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And here's how he comforts us. You ready for this? He comforts us in Christ Jesus. He comforts us in the reality of who his son is and what his son has done for us. How does he comfort us in Christ Jesus? Well, let me tell you, God in Christ Jesus became one of us. God in Christ Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. God in Christ Jesus became fully God, fully man to rescue us. But what does that mean to us? I mean, it means this, that God relates to us. You know that God in Christ Jesus was tempted in every way like us without sin? That he endured our junk, our brokenness. He knows our pain, our sorrow. We have a God who relates to us. Just this week, I was walking down the halls of MCP and I was reminded of this glorious story of a God who loves and a God who redeems and a God who rescues. And I was feeling kind of dark and downcast and depressed. And I turned the corner and there's a picture painted on the wall of Jesus kneeling in the garden and with a face covered with anguish, crying to a father in heaven saying, God, take this from me. God, help me. And I realize, my goodness, my God relates to me. I mean, there is Jesus. He gets it. He knows the grief himself. He knows the agony himself. And then the joy that came to my heart, I thought, you know what Jesus does now? Not only did he conquer death, not only did he uh, conquer sin, he now lives to intercede for us. The one who was on his knees in the garden, sweating blood because he was about to become sin. The one who knew agony like no one else, depression like no one else, now lives to intercede for us. And that's how the God is the God of all comfort because he reminds the Father of all that he's done for us. But listen, God's comfort not only comes through Jesus, it comes through one another. In verses 6b uh, and 7, I mean, Paul was comforted with the arrival of Titus. If you remember, and you won't remember, but way back in 2.13, it tells us that Paul had no peace of mind because he was looking for Titus. He wanted to get word about how Titus was doing and how the church at Corinth was doing. And he praised God that he was going to lead him in triumphal procession to Titus. But he's so encouraged because he sees a brother in Christ in the trenches. Listen, here's the point. God comforts us through one another. 
I mean, God made us for community. I mean, the reason we pass the peace is to comfort one another. God has created us for community. Satan wants to separate you from community, wants you to live life on your own, wants you to have your depressed little life and just, just kind of be miserable. But God says, no, I've given you Christ Jesus to lift you up and I've given you one another. Get in a community that knows your story. Get in a group of people that will love you, that will cry with you, that will be with you. That's the only way you have a heart overflowing with joy. Because you're known by God and you're loved. You're known by God's people and you're loved. And you're also in a church that will be preaching God's word to you. I mean, I mean God, God encouraged Paul because he heard good news about the church. In the midst of a world that was going to hell, he was so encouraged that the church was standing for truth. God comforts those uh, who are depressed, but you need to do three things. Keep close to Jesus. Because Jesus stepped into our darkest darkness to bring his light. You need to be in community and you need to be a part of the church. If that doesn't work, call a pastor, a counselor and keep wrestling. Lastly, a godly grief that leads to repentance, verses 8 through 16. Paul had written a pretty tough letter calling the church on the carpet for some sins and rebellion. And he says at first it was difficult to do this because you know what? It's difficult to speak the truth in love. Why is it difficult to speak the truth in love? Because we fear man more than we fear God. And Paul slipped, and he tells us right in 7-1 that our fear should be for a holy God. I mean, our respect, our authority should be there. And we should live our lives speaking truth and love to one another. What point? To produce godly grief that will lead to godly repentance. He deals with his godly grief versus worldly grief. And what's the main difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Well, first of all, I got to tell you, the main difference between a godly grief and worldly grief is what it produces. Godly grief produces salvation, life. Worldly grief produces death. What is worldly grief? Well, here it is. Worldly grief is being sorrowful or sad for your sinful behavior without turning to Jesus first. Worldly grief is you saying, I'm trying harder. I'm going to do better. I mean, worldly grief can produce this. It can be re- produce regret. It truly can be sorry for what you've done. It could try to produce temporary reform. Don't miss me on this. This is, this is the heart of what we got to hear. Godly grief is gospel grief. And what it does, it produces a changed heart. Godly grief produces salvation without regret. How in the world does that happen? Because look what it says. Godly grief leads to repentance in life, not reform. Isn't it interesting? The Bible doesn't say that godly grief should lead to reform. Turn turn from your ways. Turn or burn. No, it says this. Godly grief should cause us to turn from our sinful ways and look right in the face of Jesus. And first and foremost, turn there and realize, oh yeah, the cross of Christ. He became this sin. Oh yeah, he conquered this sin. That sin hung on the cross. I'm robed in his righteousness. Sinful behavior should not lead us to become more moral, work harder, or try to do better and reform. It won't work. Godly grief turns us to a God who wants to love and forgive us, and it shows us the cross. And in godly grief, we turn to him and say, unbelievable, Jesus, you became my sin. I've become your righteousness. I am free. I am cleansed. I now have life. 
Do we get it? That's, that's the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The difference is repenting of our sins and turning to Jesus. The fruit of that is the reform that He wants us to have. The fruit of that are those things that were listed that you've shown that you were eager about that. You've shown that you've cleaned up your life. What you and I have a tendency to do is try to say a worldly grief. Oh man, I messed up again. I don't feel good about myself. I didn't look good in that situation. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to live a little differently. I'm going to just say I'm sorry and try to move on. It doesn't work. Ask your spouse if that works. How often do we try a worldly grief to change? God gives us a gospel way, a better way. He said, if we really love one another, we speak truth in love. And we'll realize that we are out of accord with the holy God. But what we do is we don't try to raise the bar of performance. We run to the cross of Jesus. And we find salvation and life and power to live for him. Repentance unto life uh, was a phrase that we had on the screen. Is a saving grace, according to our confession, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it, where? Unto God, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. You see, none of this is possible. You can't have a heart that's overflowing with joy. You can't be comforted in your depression. You can't have repentance that leads to life without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn immediately from your sin, but turn to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness and strength. I'm so often saying sorry without him, and it just doesn't work. A godly heart that overflows with joy. A gospel heart. A godly comfort that heals our depression in Christ Jesus and one another. A godly grief that leads to repentance and life. Let us pray. Father, what an amazing, merciful God that you are. Amazing. You're so merciful that you tell us that our lives have to be in line with a holy God. Of course, you're holy. But what you require, you provide for the holiness of Christ. And God, you have the right to say, we messed up and we should try harder. That while our life should be about reform, but God, you want our lives to be about Jesus and the gospel. That we turn to him and realize he paid it all. I owe nothing. I owe nothing at the bar of God's justice. I've been given everything. Now reform comes because I'm compelled by the love of Christ. I'm a child of the King. Father, I pray that you'd remind us of that as we give our tithes and offerings and sing to you in Christ's name. Amen.